Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Judson Moore. Based in Berlin, it seems like a shame to try to describe his career in just one sentence, but amongst the many things he has done, Judson is a travel writer, product management professional, and social entrepreneur who currently works with eBay. You can follow him on Twitter at Judson L. Moore, and check out his website at JudsonLMoore.com. Judson is the author of the LeanPub book, Exponential Happiness, How to Identify and Pursue Life Goals Starting at a Young Age. In the book, Judson shares his own experience and philosophy in his own voice on some of the most important decisions we make in our lives, particularly with a view to talking to people starting out on their journey, but also for people who want to start a new one and anyone who finds themselves in a situation where they're getting asked for life advice. In this interview, we're going to talk about Judson's uh, varied background, career and professional interests, his new book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience being a self-published writer and author. So thank you, Judson, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Lynn, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Uh, you have a particularly interesting one. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and uh, how you first became interested in travel. Wow. So it's funny. I, I often refer to, you know, we live in the modern age of superhero tales uh, with Marvel comics and everything else. Everyone seems to have to have a, a origin story. So I often talk about my origin story being about a, uh, a youth camp that I participated in in Louisiana when I was 15 years old. Uh, but uh, to start there, I think I'd be doing a disservice to uh, really kind of what led me up to that point and what a lot of the book really um, is the result of, I think. Uh, I was born and raised in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, to two parents that were uh, that are both uh, ordained ministers uh, and academics. Uh, and uh, have a brother. He's two years older than me. His name is Lou, and he was born with cerebral palsy, and he actually died when I was 14 years old. He was two years older than me. And this, uh, of course, this had a huge impact on my life growing up uh, as uh, throughout my childhood, uh, having a handicapped brother uh, who wasn't able to care for himself uh, so, so strongly, having to have the extra care for my parents, also meant that one of the best ways that I could contribute to his care was to take care of myself when I was able-bodied and old enough to do things uh, for for myself. And then, of course, later also helping my parents with uh, with his care as well. Uh, But this this gave me, uh, since a very young age, a very uh, independent streak. Uh, It really kind of taught me how to how to live in this world, uh, take care of myself, make my own decisions, uh, you know, kind of move through the daily struggles that we all face. Um, you know, mine, mine being my own, uh, we all have a different story. Uh, but for me, you know, this thing that, <clears throat> that I always refer to, you know, it's the, the very worst thing that could ever happen to a parent, uh, you know, not just the loss of a child, but, but the prolonged loss of a child, you know, living with that for, for so many years and having that be the definition of your day to day. Uh, it's a very difficult thing, but for me as a child, it was, of course, it was the only thing I ever knew. It was just life as, as usual. And so coming up in that environment, uh, and I always had very supportive parents. They were always there for me when I did need them. I don't want to give any impression like I was neglected. Uh, that's certainly not the case. Uh, but I was able to, to uh, be independent at a very young age, I think. And that made a big impact on me later on in life um, when I was still by most measures, uh, quite young, but fairly independently minded. And so when I was uh, starting to be faced with opportunities as a teenager to, to participate in various types of programs or um, yeah, just different experiences, uh, 
that maybe others would have thought a little bit of hesitation about whether or not they could have participated. And I felt a little bit more empowered or able to, uh, to raise my hand and say yes. So, <clears throat> so the origin story uh, that I often tell uh, was when I was 15 years old, I was at this uh, Rotary uh, camp. Uh, is like a youth uh, camp uh, hosted by the local Rotary clubs in Louisiana where I lived. Uh, moved there um, when I was 14 years old, so this was one year later. And it's a, it's a camp for yeah, – well, honestly, it's, it's kind of a typical summer camp. You know, it's got some leadership components, some team-building components, some, uh, you know, just learning good social skills and all this stuff. And there were also some pieces where we had some community leaders coming in and speaking about various topics and sharing their stories with us. And there was one, uh, one presenter in particular who came and spoke with us. Uh, as this was a Rotary camp, of course, they didn't miss the opportunity to promote some of the other Rotary uh, youth programs that they support – and, uh, and one presenter came to, to talk about the Rotary Youth Exchange Program. And she came and she said all these magnificent things about how you, as a, as a teenager, can live somewhere else in the world for up to a year and, and we'll pay for it. And you'll get to live with a local family and go to a local school and learn the local language. And you'll get to have this adventurous and exciting uh, experience and you can do it. Now you can do it as a teenager, you can do it as a student, and it's not going to cost you or your money, or you or your family any money. And we're going to sponsor this, and we're going to make sure that you're with a you're in a safe place with a good family that would take care of you. And uh, you know, and they have this, uh, they have, you know, they're recognized as a symbol of trust around the world. And it sounded just like a marvelous opportunity. And the call to action uh, at the end of her presentation was for any interested student uh, just to go up and talk to her, just say hello, let her know your name, and just say that you're interested. And I thought to myself, I was like, oh, wow, that is a line that I'm going to have to, you know, elbows out, jump my way through and like, st you know, stage dive to the front of the crowd to get up there and try to get my name known. And of the 50 or 60 campers in the room, I was the only person who spoke to her. And as a result, a year later, I was in Germany for the first time, and I did live uh, one year, my 17th year, uh, in Germany and, as a Rotary Youth Exchange student, and this is the, the experience that changed my life forever. And for many, many years, uh, my peers, some of them who actually were in that camp with me, who were in that same room and had the same offer that I had, they asked me for a long time how it is that I was getting these opportunities, why I was getting to travel. It all went back to that moment. And, and I, and it took me a long time to figure out, you know, why me, you know, how was I special? What, what was different about me to them? It, in my own opinion, I, I would have thought that any of them probably could have jumped the line in front of me, just family status or uh, longer, you know, longer time in the you know, more established in the community. Uh, if, if they had expressed interest, they probably almost surely would have been chosen to participate in this program before I would have been. Uh, and yet it was me, and it was because I had the tenacity to express interest, to raise my hand, to say, uh, I'd like to be considered. And the difference between me and them was probably somewhere in the lines that I was somehow conditioned to, to think that, uh, that there was a chance for that, that I could raise my hand, that I was allowed to put my name in, in the running for that sort of opportunity, um, 
Yeah. And that, uh, that reminds me of a, sorry to jump in. That reminds me of a really yeah. interesting uh, anecdote that your mother told on the expat sandwich podcast interview that you, Oh yes. Where uh, you were a little toddler. And um, at one point you, you and your family were in the living room or something like that. And you, you went into the kitchen on your own, totally un, like without explaining to get hand towel and you came back and sort of cleaned off something on your I think you either your brother you you helped out your brother in some in some yeah. very specific way and your mother tells this great story where she's like oh like he walked away from all of us with this plan to go do something to come and to to help to help his brother and it, that just sort of came to him naturally and this idea of without thinking about it just taking for granted the fact that you can make these decisions and go do these things seems to be something that was there very early <laughs> on for you uh, and and so before before we go on and thank you for being so forthcoming and sharing all these details your family came to some political attention uh, as a result of uh, you know the the um, the challenge that that you faced uh, can you talk a little bit about that yeah sure um, so <laughs> it, it was funny for me growing up uh, one of one of the tales I like to tell is that uh, as a child uh, a family vacation for me was a trip to Washington DC to lobby Congress <laughs> and um, my parents um, were were involved in a uh, coalition of parents of children with disabilities in Kentucky. Uh, so, so they were active in supporting uh, policies around, of course, supporting children with disabilities, but also supporting the families of children with disabilities. Uh, a lot of that being revolving around health, various types of healthcare reform, also education reform, and access to physical therapy and other resources such as this. And um, for one reason or another, um, my family was. Uh, was frequently invited to share our story, uh, both at the local, state, and uh, national level, to uh, various uh, political leaders and other groups who uh, who were also working in these topics. And uh, you know, we we, we have my my father's my father has a sister, so my aunt uh, was living at that time uh, in Alexandria, Virginia, just across the way from Washington D.C. And so that really gave us kind of access to go to D.C. You know, we had a, a place to stay. Uh, we didn't you know we didn't have a, a lot of money coming up. A lot of the money we had were put into the healthcare costs to support my brother. Um, but we you know but we we could afford the gas and drive over the Smoky Mountains and get to DC once a year and, um, and participate and have that voice there. And there was one, uh, very special occasion when, uh, we were invited to, uh, offer a congressional testimony, uh, and, um, Hillary Clinton was, uh, in the audience or, or she, she came, uh, to, to bear witness to the stories that we had. And, uh, she, we had, there was a, there were a number of families were kind of like lined up, uh, in kind of procession order. And she came down the row and met everybody. And, you know, there's, there's press and there's media and there's, uh, you know, there's hundreds of people around and there's all this chatter and everybody's vying for somebody's attention. Uh, and every, you know, everybody's got something to say and there's something, you know, I, and I was a child, so it was, it was hard for me to probably grasp all this, but my parents tell the story all the time that this was such, this was the most positive political moment that they'd ever encountered because amongst all that chaos, when Hillary got to us, uh, it was like everything melted away. She was in a room with my mom, my dad, me and herself. And that's it. There was, 
nobody else. She was just laser focused on what we had to say. And, um, and it was a very moving moment. I mean, I knew who she was. She was first lady at the time and, you know, I knew who she was and I was old enough as uh, price seven or eight, uh, to kind of grasp, uh, the gravity of all that. Um, but, but it, it, it definitely left a mark, uh, you know, seeing my parents being a, you know, reaching out, you know, uh, act, being activists for something that they cared about, working in a, on a topic of social good, uh, having their voice uh, not only being projected but also being heard by uh, people of influence, uh, it, it made an impression on me as a child and, and one that probably did take a long time to sink in on me as being somehow uh, rare or uh, uh, an odd opportunity because, again, it was the only life I ever knew. And um, my parents weren't um, you know, highly connected political folks. They, uh, but they, but they had, they had this topic and they worked hard to promote, um, issues around this topic. And occasionally that led to opportunities to, to get our story into the, uh, you know, across the table and into the minds of people who really can make an impact. And you chose to study after you spent your, your very uh, adventurous year in Germany, uh, you chose to study politics in university. Uh, That's correct. Yeah. What, what, uh, what led you to, to that? Well, so I, I can't talk about politics without talking about Germany, but there's a whole other thing that happened in the middle. Uh, and of course, all of this goes back to those, those familial uh, roots in politics as well. But after my year abroad in Germany, I came back uh, to the United States and I, I still had to graduate, had to finish high school. Uh, my scheduling was such that I was able to graduate uh, in the middle of the year. Uh, so the ending of my high school was actually in January. And rather than uh, taking off or starting university right away, uh, I kind of decided I wanted to have a little bit more of a, a quote, normal uh college experience because I'd, I'd actually gone to five high schools. Um, I, I moved from Kentucky to Louisiana in the middle of that. And I'd shifted schools a couple of times plus the year abroad. And I, and I loved it. I, I love meeting new people. And it was also like during those years of trying, you know, form, formidable years of trying to discover yourself. It was also kind of cool to be able to hit the reset button every year with a new audience of people and be a new you if you wanted to be, you know, uh, it, it was a really actually exciting time to get to make those shifts. But, uh, but I think I'd had enough. And when I went to university, I wanted to be a little bit stable. So that meant that I had, uh, I wanted to enter in the fall when most people start university and that, and that meant that I now had six months of unoccupied time. And I saw that coming in advance. So I had, uh, stripped out all my extracurricular activities from school and I got an after school job and I saved, uh, saved money, uh, selling car radios at a Sears. Uh, if that doesn't date me, I don't know what does. Um, <laughs> but I, but I performed very well in that job, uh, because all the other salespeople wanted to sell big screen TVs, but you had all these kids coming in wanting to buy car stereos for their car. And I was their age. So I was able to sell car stereos like crazy, but I, I you know, I did that for half a year, made decent money, especially for that age. And then I, I applied that uh, to a six-month backpacking trip across Brazil um, after I finished high school, and uh, and this and this was really this kicked off my real understanding of what programs like the Rotary Youth Exchange Program was going to do for me in my future. Because when I went to Brazil, my routing was to visit all of these um, all of these Brazilian students who had been in Germany as well, 
and who were now also home. And now I would go visit them at home and visit their families. Uh, most of their families were also members of their local Rotary Club. So I got to go as a guest to the Rotary Clubs. Oftentimes I would present since I was a foreign um, uh, you know, visitor. I'd get to present my story there as well. I'd, if there was a service project going on, I got to participate in those as well. And, and it was this experience, especially some of those uh, local service projects with the Rotary Clubs, when I got to see, uh, got to go to some of the favelas in Brazil, the very, very uh, poor neighborhoods. And this, this was me now as a 17-year-old, or excuse me, 18-year-old, uh, being face-to-face with real poverty for the very first time. The experience in Germany was fantastic. Uh, it, it played a huge role in who I've become, but uh, it was it, it wasn't so different from being in the United States. It's a developed nation. It's beautiful. You know, it's the culture is in a lot in some ways very similar. But Brazil is a very different country, and and it is beautiful. And uh, people ask me now. They said, Judson, all the places you've been, what's your favorite place? And I never have to hesitate. The answer is always Brazil. So there's just something about it. It's magic in the air. The people are just beautiful on the inside and out, and that you just it exuberates through the culture and the music, and the, the air is just a different vibrancy there. But but on the other side of that, you also have you, you see real suffering and and real real poverty and real issues. And, and I got to, to see all that face to face and uh, experience some of that and, and walk away and come back to America, uh, as I needed to make decisions about what I was going to do in university. And, uh, though I didn't really know what it meant at the time, and maybe in some degrees, I'm still trying to figure out what this means, but the mission statement of my life that I wrote down at that time was that I wanted to do, I wanted to be I wanted to work in the international arena and I wanted to do something that would make the world a better place. And to me, uh, with my, my childhood upbringings, uh, seeing, uh, how politics uh, shapes the world and my time abroad, uh, it made a lot of sense to me that I would follow a political path. And so I chose to study foreign policy. And then, uh, at the end you decided you didn't want to pursue at that time, that career. So you, you tell you tell this story that you had a kind of, a kind of negative epiphany as it were in, in class. Yeah. So, um, because fate like always, always has a, a twisted sense of humor. I was in a class in my final semester of university. The class was called foreign policy. So it was exactly what I thought I wanted to do. And I was in this class. It was, it was, there was a bit of a role-playing simulation uh, component to this class. It was actually a very cool class. But I realized one day, I just I, – I don't want to do this. I don't want anything to do with this. There's, there's just there's just so, so much in that, in that political space where uh, – you know, you're, you're playing chase, you're playing chess against people's lives and livelihoods. Uh, you know, who, you know, what village is going to stop getting fresh water so that we can get oil, uh, you know, these types of things. And, uh, anyway, it was the impression that they, that the class and, and some of my other classes kind of left on me at the time. And I said, no, I, I understand that politics definitely can be used for good. And I also do believe that, uh, foreign policy, American foreign policy also leads to a lot of good in the world, uh, but I can also see where there are some conflicts and that there are some times when uh, the humanitarian mission does not win the day, and I just didn't think I had what it was going to take to um, 
to, to really be part of that uh, at that time. And, you know, this was something about the political education. A lot of it is political history. It's really a history degree with uh, a concentration in politics, right? I mean, this is, this is kind of what you get. Uh, it's not really about the mechanics of politics. I mean, of course, you learn the Constitution and things like this, but you, it's not really about, you know, what is a career politician or what, what is it like to be a career civil servant? So I had to learn some of those lessons later. But at that moment, it just seemed to me like this is this is not going to be the move for me. And what I what I saw was uh, what I felt at the time was I said, OK, and there's also probably three things that I can do with a political science degree. I can go to law school which I wasn't particularly interested in doing. Uh, I could get some low-level job or internship in some political office, which actually, as I turned around and looked at all my peers studying politics, uh, they had already been interning in political offices four years, and I'd never considered that as something I really wanted to do. So that was an indicator that maybe I wasn't going in the place where my heart really was. And the third thing I said I can do with a political science degree is have a career change, and so I chose the career change. Yeah, I've got, I've got, uh, I've got, um, uh, we've got a lot to talk about uh, when it comes to <laughs> what you did next. Uh, but you, you were reminding me, I, um, I recently read uh, George Packer had an article in Foreign Affairs about Richard Holbrook, and there's this really interesting anecdote he tells where so Richard Holbrook is in Vietnam. That's where he sent first with the Foreign Service, and he's sent to some rural place. And there's some other American man there, young man, they're in their early 20s. And uh, he's he's sort of the other guy is just there as some to serve some kind of charity. And Holbrook goes like, I'm the man from the State Department. And this is the boy from the charity. And I just thought, fuck you. That's not interesting or tough. And there was actually a quite, it's sort of understated, but very scathing um, article about Packer's book about Holbrook in the New York Review of Books. And it, it sort of gets to, to some of, it's sort of, it's, it's being very kind of, the article is very polite in it. It's, it's, let's put it this way, respectful of a man with, who earned a good reputation. But this, it all got me, when you were talking about this, it all got me thinking about how if you enter into foreign service as a career early on, then you might have dream. You, you obviously, it sort of seems okay to have dreams about your career and what you're aiming for. But it, it always, it struck me that there must be, there must be for people who are of genuine intent, some kind of conflict between this being about the issues that you're facing and yourself. You know, you're, are you, are you really in, in Bosnia to advance your career? Right. You know, right. and, and the answer for some, for a lot of people who succeed in those roles is yes. Yeah. It's about yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. They call these hardship posts, right? Uh, when you're, when you're not in Paris or Berlin or London, uh, you know, these, these, you know, you go to places like Bosnia or Afghanistan, um, you know, places that are war zones or previously war zones, uh, you know, that don't have, quote, Western standards of living. Uh, they consider these places to be hardship posts and you, you get uh, uh, kind of accelerated in your career if you volunteer for those posts early on, uh, because uh, if you do that for one or two rounds of duty, so two or four years, then you can kind of um, uh, you kind of get a little bit of preferential choice in the next rounds, um, or or you know a lot of people will look at you and, and say, well, you know, you served your time, um, and 
you know, I always I always thought that serving in those those environments would just be most rewarding because maybe those are the places that you can make the biggest impact. Um, you know, I mean, as a diplomat in uh, one of one of the fancier cities of the world, I'm sure life would be grand, but how boring. <laughs> you know, I mean, what 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 are you really doing to make the world a better place uh, if you're, you know, if you're an, uh, a diplomat in in, in London? Um, I'm, 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 I, I envy the lifestyle. You know, I'm sure it's a fantastic uh, place to experience uh, being a diplomat and to get to go to all those types of events and activities and meet those people. And if you have a family to raise your raise your family there. Uh, it is wonderful, but, um, yeah, for me, for somebody, especially like being younger and wanting to make a, more of a, a splash in the world, uh, make, try to impact people's lives, uh, more directly. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'd be able to accomplish that or to feel that I was contributing sufficiently if I was in those types of places. So yes, for me, bring on the hardship, uh, post that sounds a lot more interesting. And you, and so you joined the Peace Corps. Right. Yeah. So I went, I went full on hardship post. <laughs> yeah. You were in the Kyrgyz uh, Republic. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Kyrgyz Republic, uh, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, so it's one of the, uh, the stands in central Asia. It's on the Northwest side of, of China, South of Kazakhstan. So it's, it's, uh, it's also a, Oh, I believe it's the smallest of the stands, but we'd have to fact check me on that. Um, but for me, it was actually it was pretty small because uh, I was there from 2011 to 2013, and uh, they had uh, suffered a political revolt in 2010, uh, just a year or so before I arrived, and everything was uh, fine. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a war or something like this, uh, but there there was a little bit of unease, mostly in the south of the country. Country. And so actually for, for my term of service, uh, Peace Corps volunteers were only allowed to travel and, and, and serve in the northern half of the country. And we weren't even allowed to travel um, uh, to the south uh, for, for any purpose. Uh, and so uh, it's already a, a smaller country. And then for me, it just got cut in half. <laughs> um, but but it was more than enough uh, to to give to give me um, uh, opportunities to make an impact. Yeah, and speaking of that impact, so uh, I, as I understand it, one sort of job you had was helping to set up radio transmitters in this. Or some, this I'll get I'll get a little bit wrong. Well, I'll give you obviously you'll get a chance to correct it, but you're setting up radio stations or radio transmitters in this mountainous country, and um, you know radio's hard in the mountains, uh, but everybody had phones, uh, and and there was also something about setting up computer labs basically in schools, and you sort of took some knowledge that you gained from this experience. To help set up a network that was used by journalists, I believe. So I, now that I've mangled it, uh, you've got a chance to, to get it right, I guess. Actually, you, you, you did pretty well. So I, I found some details for you. Yes, my, my initial assignment was working with a community radio station in the western province of Kyrgyzstan called Talas. And it's kind of like the wild, wild west. And they, you know, and they embrace that wild, wild west uh, 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 as a badge of honor. Uh, they, they often made, made kind of uh, – they compared themselves to Texas and the United States. And the way with the accent, they'd be like, oh, Talas is Dallas. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, they, they were really proud of this and, and in a way that you, you'd find in Texas as well. And, um, but, uh, but yes, I, I was there I was assigned to work with this community radio station 
And uh, on my arrival, they were celebrating their fourth anniversary since their initial broadcast. And and honestly, they, they were doing great things. They, as a community radio station, it's mostly volunteer based. Uh, they would train people in the community how to, uh, you know, the technical skills and the journalistic skills uh, for for how to conduct, uh, how, how to do radio journalism, how, how to put together a show. Uh, some of it was journalistic in nature. Some of it was uh, more entertainment in nature, like uh, doing uh, like radio dramas and plays and that sort of thing. Um, and, and it was really open. Anybody in the community who wanted to participate could come and get the crash course and, and, and participate. Um, and all volunteer basis. And, and there was a strong emphasis on engaging uh, students from the local schools as well. And so this was great uh, kind of after school activity for a lot of them. And there were a couple of professional journalists that were involved in this as well. Um, their, their supporters came from the, the, the supporters of the radio station, the, the funders and the institutes that were backing them um, outside of Kyrgyzstan. Because, of course, they had local support as well. But there was a, a lot of support coming from uh, entities like uh, the European Union Commission, uh, Deutsche Welle Academy, which is the uh, academic arm of the Deutsche Welle, which is sort of like the public broadcaster here in Germany. Um, uh, other like USAID and other uh, multinational uh, aid agencies uh, like this. Uh, UNESCO was another big one. And uh, and they and they were all trying to model this radio community radio um, uh uh, plan around Central Asia as a reflection of the successes that they had seen with community media in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa in in previous decades. Uh, the difference between Sub-Saharan Africa and uh, Kyrgyzstan is, as you pointed out, the mountains. Uh, when you can in, when you can go to the plains of Africa and erect a radio tower that runs on solar panels and you can broadcast a 500 mile radius, that is a very different story than when you go uh, much further north where you're getting much less sun uh, and you need to erect a radio tower that theoretically could, uh, in flat terrain, have a long range, but you're in high mountains. Uh, Europeans who visit there, they can they, they call uh, Kyrgyzstan the Switzerland of Central Asia, and they really do have very, very high mountains there. And so radio in, in that environment, it just doesn't work very well. And I saw a lot of Peace Corps volunteers. Uh, there were there were 100 volunteers in the country at my time. It's a 27-month it's a term of service, and so every year you're getting a new group in, uh, roughly 45 or 50 uh, new volunteers each year. And so um, and many of those volunteers were uh, either teaching English or teaching teachers how to teach English. And there were also some that were working in, in the health services as well. Um, and I was what was called an economic uh, development volunteer. And what that really meant is make the best out of it that you can, kid. <laughs> and uh, so I had a lot of flexibility and uh, and I was able to think creatively about the problems presented to me and make my own schedule about them. And what I saw with the radio is I said, you know, this radio station doesn't really need my, my help or I feel very limited in my capacity to help them because they – They've been doing this for years. They have a really good thing going here. They already have a lot of community involvement. They're broadcasting over 12 hours a day of original content, uh, good quality content. They have a lot of international uh, backers, and uh, you know, so funding isn't a problem. And their um, and their professional uh, development, uh, the training is also world class. So I'm not going to compete on any of this. But part of their sustainability plan was that. 
as they were developing these skills, they should then be the ones who go out and train other would-be radio stations around the country those skills. So they should do that knowledge transfer. And this is this is the sustainability. You kind of you train it all up in one location, but then that location spreads it out to the other parts. And so a lot of what I did was I would I would sit there in the village at this radio station and I would help them make training materials for about a month. And then at the end of the month, we'd all travel to the capital city of Bishkek. And in Bishkek, all these journalists would come from all over the country and they would receive the training and it would be wonderful and full of enthusiasm and lots of participation. And, and actually in the they'd get really good results during the training. So we'd have some like testing uh, radio shows or whatever. And, but then they'd all go home, and the vast majority of them were going home to places that had not yet received the technical equipment and the investment necessary to have a radio station. And it's very expensive. Uh, you, of course, you have all the licensing and the governmental agreements and all that stuff, uh, but it's also uh, the importing of the towers, uh, the, the transmission equipment, that you need to have a physical space to secure all these things. You need to have power and electricity, so on and so forth. It's just a lot of stuff you got to do. And, and I, and I did this for going on a year and I was contemplating what I was seeing and I was feeling like, you know, I I don't know if what I'm doing here is really useful. I I don't feel like I'm contributing that much value. I mean, everybody seems to be glad I'm here and I'm glad I'm here, but what, what impact am I really making? And one day I went home, I was living with a, with a local Kyrgyz family and I came home and my host mother uh, who was one of the village elders was, uh, sitting at the dining room table, having tea with some of the other, uh, village elders. And, uh, they, and they called me over and I had a, I just walked in the door and I had an iPad in my hand for whatever reason. And, uh, they, they snatched the iPad from me and start passing around the table. And instantly one of them takes it and they hit the home button. It lights up and she swipes on the swipey thing and unlocks it. And then she starts going around apps and opening an app and closing. I mean, she she just like took off, like she knew exactly what she was doing. And I had this epiphany moment where I said, Oh my Lord, like these people they, they know technology. Every single person in this country has a smartphone or s- some degree of phone on their, on their, on, you know, personal phone that they can use for WhatsApp or texting or email, stuff like this. Um, this is how people communicate. WhatsApp was how people stayed in touch with their families. People didn't make phone calls or texts. They WhatsApped everywhere. And so what I also saw in some of those other volunteers that were working in schools one of the flagship projects that that we would launch in schools were computer labs, but the computer labs have a whole mess of problems. I mean, of course, they're expensive, and you get this equipment, you don't, but they get viruses on there because information gets passed around on thumb drives. They don't really have access to the internet to, in order to download these, you know, hundreds of megabytes of updates every month uh, for your antivirus. Uh, electricity can be a problem, and so a lot of times. These computers, you know, you, you have a, a, an opening celebration of the computer lab, but within a few weeks, all the computers are packed up in boxes and, and locked away in a closet yeah. because they're, they're, they're seen as like these valuable things. We have to take care of them. And what we know is if we leave them outside, they break. So we have to put them in the closet so they don't break, yeah, that's but then a, they're not being used. Yeah, sorry, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, but that, that's just such a wonderful anecdote um, uh, about how – because, you know, when you first hear the story of, you know, a school gets all this really expensive equipment and then it ends up being – like you go – you go to the lab where it was all set up and it's all gone and then you ask where it is and it's like locked in the administrator's closet the first thing you think is naturally oh there's some kind of corruption going on here but actually it was a reflection of a deep respect for the equipment to to protect it 
from yes, being yes. armed. Uh, yeah, that was that was it's really yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, and and it, it's and it's heartbreaking to see that, and then it's part of it's a little bit funny sometimes, and and then you try to explain to people like, well, we'll break it and then we'll figure out how to fix it. Yeah, but uh, but then the, this the sustainability of those computer labs is also quite low because a lot of times that that training, the continual education and training and the updates and um, maintenance and stuff, it's not there, and it just becomes a whole lot of money spent for for a good cause with best of, of intention, but it doesn't get very far. And this gave me the. This, this idea that if we shifted the journalists' medium, so if we took them from radio and put them on the internet via mobile device, that this could enable them to start telling their story right now uh, because a phone, you know, a mobile phone, you can do everything you need for journalism. You can take pictures. You can take video. You can edit. You can take audio. Uh, you can type. You can upload. You can download. You have connection to the internet whenever you need it. If the electricity goes out, no problem. Your battery's going to go another eight hours or whatever. Um, you know, you can plug an adapter into it and then show from your phone a presentation that you downloaded uh, off some online library, and you can show it on a big screen TV uh, in the community center. So it's just all sorts of things that you could do from a phone. And even if in your village you don't even if even if some re really remote village doesn't have uh, internet access, well, you can still do all the things on the phone, and then once a week go down the mountainside and upload it all and capture the new stories. And so I I wrote a proposal for this, and with my software uh, and blogging background, uh, I had a little bit of technical idea of how I could put this together. <clears throat> And I, I found a journalism school in uh, the capital city, Bishkek, uh, called Klop, K-L-O-O-P, uh, which is a marvelous institute. Um, and, uh, and in the end, I was able to secure three years of funding from um, a lot of those uh, entities I mentioned before, but primarily from UNESCO based out of the uh, Kazakhstan Almaty office and from the European Union Commission. And they fully funded the project for three years via the uh, local partner uh, of the, the Klop uh, Journalism School uh, that was teaching uh, journalism skills to youth in the capital city. And they've gone on to do all sorts of marvelous things. They even now have a space program for girls where they're putting together a, uh, a satellite, like a toaster-sized satellite that they're going to send into space. And it's, and it's all girls uh, ages like... 14 to 20 or something like this who are building it uh, with a, a cosmonaut um, uh, or a, a space scientist from, um, uh, from from the Russian space program. And they're just doing incredible things. One of their founders uh, uh, um, is actually now one of the senior TED fellows, like, you know, from TED Talks. And you know, they're just their whole story is just wonderful and fantastic. And this was one of the greatest pleasures for me. I also get to work with that that school and get to know those students and to work with with those leaders. And um, and we put together this website. And we distributed these phones to all these journalists around the country. And I built a, a website at uh, kyrgyzmedia.com. And that was in 2012. And now we're sitting in 2019. And that is one of the powerhouses of online media of Central Asia. Yeah, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, uh, <laughs> congratulations on uh, on on there and your success with setting that up and the, seeing, seeing the legacy of these projects sort of persist. Oh, yeah, is, is such a reward. Um, it, it is it really, really is. And what a, and what a rare opportunity that is, because so many of the things that we will do in our life, we will not see the impact um, and, and, and many of the impacts that that website makes today, I cannot see the impact of that either, but I can go into Google analytics and I can tell you how many people have read what stories today. And 
and I'm completely hands off. I'm still in communication with those folks, and occasionally, if they need need help, you know, that's really what the school, the local school there is is there for. Um, but but sometimes they reach out to me, and I'm glad to to be in touch with them still. Um, but it it is my 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 proudest achievement. Uh, uh, I am very very proud uh, to have been able to succeed in getting that project started to to have to have had the, the idea from its inception and to convince others to support it and to get it to take off that, uh, that, that is very, very meaningful to me. Uh, but, uh, the credit it's, it's on those who have continued it forward because when I, I left the project as the phones were going out the door and being distributed, that was the end of my involvement. So I really got the setup there and, and, and it, and it wouldn't have happened without me, but it definitely wouldn't have continued without them. And what they've gone on to do with it in these, in these subsequent years is just beyond anything I could have ever, ever dreamed of. And, uh, and so you, I believe you then went back to the States for a bit, but then you found yourself in Hyderabad in South India. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about, about that experience. I know there's a, I mean, just a ton of growth going on there and you were, you were working for a mobile telephony company. It, well, yeah. So I was working for a company called Mutual Mobile that was headquartered in Austin, Texas, and they were a uh, they are a, a mobile apps uh, company. So they're they're uh, an agency that builds apps for for other large companies. Yeah, and uh, especially during that time, a lot of the a lot of the big global companies around the world hadn't developed their own in-house mobile app resource you know teams yet and uh and so this company was got a lot of that type of work for a lot of really big globally recognized brands and uh, i was their operations manager so i wasn't working on the so- software side of that just quite yet I, you know i had a background uh, working kind of freelance in software and i was interested in technology but but that's not what i did for them and one of the things they had me do in Austin, we had two floors of a downtown high rise that while I was there, we did an in-place renovation. And so I oversaw the whole renovation and worked with architects and designers and bought all the furniture and selected carpets and paints and, you know, had to move people around and shift desks and all that type of stuff, handle all the logistics. And that whole project took the better part of a year. Um, and as that was completing we decided that it was high time that we make a similar investment in our satellite office, which was in Hyderabad. And um, this was actually one of the success stories to Mutual Mobile. Our CEO, one of our founders, uh, is from Hyderabad. And uh, the founders of the company all met at the University of Texas at Austin when they were studying there together. <clears throat> and, uh, and the CEO was from uh, Hyderabad. And so since he had connections in India, uh, and in a city that has a lot of uh, technology support and a lot of people working in tech there, uh, he was able to figure out how to get a satellite office uh, started in India, even when Mutual Mobile was at a very early state um, as a startup. And that really changed things for them. Uh, the, the, the impact was, as our engineers in Austin were calling it a day, the engineers in India were arriving to work and could do the peer review of the code and then continue working throughout throughout their day. And as they were about to call it a day, then our engineers in Austin would pick up and keep going. What that meant is that we really got almost a, a 24-hour development cycle and we could just push software out that much faster than anybody else. 
but our engineers in, in Hyderabad were, were absolutely world-class, a fantastic team. Uh, but the office that they were working out of had been acquired since our early scrappy startup days, and it really wasn't a very pleasant place. And so I was very proud that you know after you know there were some great successes that Mutual Mobile was was uh, enjoying, and they had put some of some of that success into an investment of their headquarters office. But then they said, okay, we should do the same thing for our for our team in India as well. And uh, and as a result, I got to go to India and spend six months there and uh, and oversee this uh, build out of a new office space there in their uh, what's called the high tech city. But it's uh, this kind of the whole side of Hyderabad where all the tech giants are set up and it really is a, a city within a city. It's a it's whole thing. And that that was a marvelous experience for all sorts of reasons. Professionally, it was very rewarding. Um, yeah, personally, it was interesting. I lived in a five-star hotel with a city park view uh, that was also uh, taught me a lot about life, if I have to be honest. Um, but I also uh, used the opportunity to spend my weekends traveling the country quite a lot. Uh, and uh, also getting involved in the Hyderabad community, also you know, work, you know, reaching out to Rotary clubs and such. But there was one, there was one really meaningful story uh, that I still still reflect on because I, I don't know what I, I'm supposed to do with this experience, but I'll share it here. Um, I was staying at this magnificent modern five star hotel. I had this room that. I'll never be in a room as glamorous as this for the rest of my life, I don't think. And it and it had this wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling glass end of the of the room that overlooked this huge nat this huge beautiful city park view. And I would wake up every morning and I would sit in the chair by by that uh, glass wall and I'd order a cappuccino and toast to my room because. Um, I know it sounds great, but without a kitchen, you have to order room service all the time. <laughs> and that does get old pretty quick. But this was my morning routine. So I have my cappuccino and my toast. And I sit there in this chair and I prop my feet up on the glass and I watch the sunrise. But at my feet, 14 floors or so down, uh, at the start of that city park, there was this concrete bunker, like a tool shed or utility shed or something like this. And as I'd be sitting up here uh, enjoying my breakfast uh, on many days, almost every day, I right there in my view would be this man who lived in the park, who lived, I always assumed, in this shed. And he'd be outside under a trickle of water trying to bathe himself and like his laundry be strawn up there on the side. And um, and the 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 kind of dichotomy of that situation always uh, really troubled me because uh, I didn't care about being in a five star hotel. I'd rather, you know, cut cut the hotel budget in half and let's do something better with this money than putting me where I am. Um, And he was kind of a symbol of that for me. But it also was, you know, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, should I go down there and talk to him? Well, I think that just highlights the fact that he's got this hotel full of people that can watch him every day. And that doesn't service him in any real way. And every every day I thought about this, like, what can I do to like, how, how, how can I be witness to this situation where I'm here and he's there and this is not okay. I, I, this goes against everything that I kind of, um, um, aim for in life. Like it goes against everything I want to like be part of, I guess. But 
but but what what action can I take that is more serving to him or to the world than it would be self-serving to me because everything I could come up with was any action I take is going to make other people less comfortable and make me somehow feel better. And that also wasn't okay. And so in the end, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, but I, you know, but nothing, no action ever came of it. And, and perhaps that's exactly the right thing that I shouldn't have done anything at all in this situation, but it's always bothered me. It's, um, thank you for sharing that. Um, it reminds me, I went to, uh, I have a college friend from Put, from Patna in Northeastern India. And, um, one summer we went there and I, I visited his family home, spent six weeks in Patna, which in the mid nineties was not a place that tourists typically went to. And, but we, we spent some time in Delhi and, and my, my friend's family was rather affluent. And so I, I never, when we were traveling around, we always had a driver, you know, we had the AC car, car in the train and I never had to stand in line or anything like that because they would send servants to do that. Um, and I remember um, we were in Delhi one time in this car being driven by a driver. And, you know, my, my friend was pointing out, you know, oh, that's that's the Harvard of India over there, you know, this this um, school. And just as he drew my attention to that, you know, side of the car, this guy with um, bloody stump of a hand started tapping on the window because he'd seen me and, you know, wanted wanted to wanted to beg and and it was quite quite a shocking moment it's like you know here i am with the you know feeling i mean i was like a sort of like mennonite guy from like southern saskatchewan in canada like not not a fancy guy myself and here i am with a driver and servants and stuff and then and there's the harvard of india and then this 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 happens and that experience happened i had similar I mean, I had, they had like the, this similar kinds of things happened numerous times. You know, there'd be a woman by the side of the road with a baby with mutilation. And my friends would tell me, you know, that guy who, you know, that just like that guy who was tapping on the car, that woman mutilated that baby so that she would be a more sympathetic figure in her job of, of begging. And I had um, similar thoughts to the ones that you were just expressing. And they've never, I mean, like I'm not, not romanticizing my own experience. They just, just, they've never left me and I never did anything about it. Right. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's not, it, it's sort of, it's, it's funny. It's like, it's, I think, I think the response of it's none of my business is sometimes as it's sometimes right. Yeah. It's, you know, sometimes you see these things and it's, you know, we are, but one person and, and what really can we do? And, you know, we don't, we're not, we're not all the uh, trustees of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right? So we have to find other means to make an impact. And it's, um, uh, and this, this is, this is very trying. And of course, when you come face to face with things, it can teach you a lot about what's out there in the world. And it can inspire you to try to affect some sort of change somehow, whatever your gift may be. Um, uh, but this is also one of the reasons that I really support uh, you know, the, the impacts, well, the impacts that an individual can make should not be, uh, uh, underrated for sure. Uh, but, uh, there is something about the power of institutions, uh, to really affect change at a global scale and some problems that you come face to face with this, like the, the problem, you know, the, the, the poverty that I saw in, uh, Brazil or this situation that you and I have described from our time in India. Um, yes, there could be something we could do to alleviate some short term anxiety in somebody's, uh, life there. Uh, but 
of course, sometimes there's issues with that, even because the corruption and the mafias and things that are running these. Uh, and so you also want to know that when you're contributing, that it's also actually making the impact that you in, intend to make. And and this is where I think the institutionalized institutionalization of uh, organizations like Rotary International or the Red Cross or uh, the UN uh, or the Peace Corps, uh, Doctors Without Borders, and the, the list is vast, right? There, there, there's so many places. And so I don't, you know, we don't live in a world where we have to make that individual effort because if we have the heart and the care and the compassion, there's always somewhere out there where we can join forces with something that's bigger than us and, and make a big impact in that way. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, I think that that's very well said. Um, it's, uh, it's, it, there's something, I, I remember, I remember feeling very angry about it on, on a number of levels, like how, how can this exist uh, and and then when you realize what a role corruption plays uh, in that, uh, oh, yeah. and, and how deep and how deep the sort of problems are when when you know this this like the experiences we're we're describing like might sound particular to people who are listening, but it's like a hundred times a day. Uh, oh, constant! It's constant everywhere. And, yeah, and and yeah, you do, oh, yeah. you do you do feel. I mean, it is I think it is common to feel a kind of guilt, and at the same time, there's just something there's something sort of unsatisfying about the solution that you know is the only one, which is kind of just everybody banding together. You've got to be, there's got to be big institutions. It's not going to be one-on-one -on -one that something like this gets, that, that problems like that get resolved. And it's not going to, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. And it's going to take, you know, these are all the, you know, whether any of this is kind of like particularly true or not, these are the feelings that you have when you encounter things like that. Absolutely. Um, and, and all you can do is kind of, it feels like you know, just kind of keep keep paddling all the time, just always keep keep striving and uh, uh, understand the the profound role that long term institutional engagement has in affecting change for people's lives. Uh, and so, after your experience in India working for Mutual Mobile, which is based in Austin, you then uh, went to work for Trivago uh, in Germany. Yes. Yeah. So, th so this was, this was another one of these stories where, um, it, it goes back to the origin story. It, al it always goes back to the origin story. Uh, when, when I, I was, so I, I was in Austin for a couple of years and it was marvelous. Our Austin is really just such a great city. Um, but it was clear that my, my time at mutual mobile was coming to an end. I, I just completed these two massive projects, uh, the big renovation uh, in their headquarters in Austin and also the six months in India. Um, it, it, it was two really grand projects I felt very good about. Uh, it, things went really well with all of that. But the fact of the matter was is, uh, the company just wasn't going to be able to sustain my continued uh, professional development after those things. Everything else was going to feel, I think, a little bit mundane or day-to-day. -day. And it in the end, we decided that the best course of action for everybody involved was for me to make an exit. And to their credit, it, it's the best. It was the best exit from a company I've ever uh, dreamed of. Uh, it was like six months notice and they made, they wanted to make sure that I got to the end of the year just so I had health insurance to the end of the year and stuff like this. And they they supported me uh, during that time. I, I also uh, participated in a in a fellowship pro program to Egypt and, and they they were totally cool with 
you know, I said, it doesn't make sense for me to look for a new job. And then I go to Egypt on this fellowship project. Can I stay at least until that's over? And they said, yeah, no problem. So it was, it, it, they were super cool. But, um, so I, I also had a lot of time to look around Austin for other opportunities. And, uh, and given my, my interest in software and my background, uh, but, but mutual mobile bringing the first place where I was face to face with uh, real live, like real professional world-class software developers in the process by which real world-class software is produced. Um, I got to know about the product management role and this role to me sounded like a really intriguing role, like something that could for me finally be the career path that I've been looking for, like a place, one career where I could put my interests and my skills and my experience all, all into one uh, role and really do something with it. Um, but mutual mobile wasn't going to be the place where I was going to get that opportunity. And, and I, as I looked around Austin, I also wasn't finding a place to kind of get my, my, my foot in the door, so to speak. So I said, okay, if I have to look outside of Austin, then, then for me, it's kind of like hitting the reset button on starting over with a new community. And I'd done a lot of that up until that point. And so I said, if I have to hit the big red restart button on my life again and move and make all new friends and community connections, then it's got to be for another international adventure. I've got to get out. And over the years, through all these other experiences and all these places I'd been, uh, every time I'd land in a new place and I'd say, this is so exciting. Look, look, I get to have this, this amazing adventure in this amazing new place. It was also always in the back of my head of, well, I really should try to get back to Germany one day because really all of this began in Germany when I was 17. I haven't really formed a worldview yet, but it made such a big impact on who I've become. And it would be really great if I could go and experience Germany again as an adult and to work there for some years. So I, I was I was still in touch with some of my uh, school uh, schoolmates from my German school, uh, thanks to Facebook and the power of the internet, you know, being able to stay connected with people. And even though it had been a decade and a half, uh, one individual in particular, uh, was working at Trivago. And at that time, Trivago was doubling in size every year. And they were bringing people from all over the world to work out of their headquarters in Dusseldorf, Germany. Um, so instead of building offices all around the world, they have the one main office in Dusseldorf. And, uh, and so they were sponsoring visas. And that was the key because it's very difficult to find visas. Anyone who's tried to work abroad, you know, it, it's, it's not so hard to, to get a visa for studying purposes, but for work, it's really difficult unless you are a, a leader in your field or you do something very specific in engineering or the sciences. Uh, and I was a guy just trying to get uh, a new career started. So uh, I wasn't going to be a candidate for a visa, but I was able to get a visa with them because I had American market knowledge because I was American and a native English speaker. And so I actually got a role with their B2B uh, product marketing team. And, uh, and that was my foot in the door that got me a little bit closer to the product topic. And it gave me, uh, and it gave me access to the German market. And it was at Trivago uh, that after, after doing the product marketing for a little while, I found the opportunity to shift into product management and then go work on the core product of, of Trivago, the, the hotel search, uh, product. So that's what, you know, 
travelers, you, anybody else, when you see the commercials, that's what's being advertised is their hotel search product. And so I got to, to work that. That's where, that's where I uh, got my, my initial product management experience. And Trivago, it, it's a marvelous company to work for because it's, it's just one of the most multinational, multicultural, multilingual companies you can imagine uh, because of their decision to uh, bring people from around the world to one centralized location rather than to develop satellite offices. And so I, it was super cool getting to work with, it was like, 1,500 uh, people from all around the world and getting to work on this software that helps people save money on travel. And of course, I'm passionate about travel and hey, who, who doesn't benefit from saving some money? Um, and so this was really cool. And it was really great to to learn about product management there. Of course, I'd, I'd read a lot of books and I'd learned to kind of pick things up from my previous work, but I hadn't actually get to kind of do the job before. And so this was now I got to put some theoretical knowledge to the test and actually gain some experience. Um, yeah. And so I, I, but all that happened again, because one of my schoolmates from my youth exchange year, uh, and I had stayed in touch for years and years and he was there and we were in touch and I said, I want to come back. And he was able to, uh, put Trivago on the radar for me. I, I wouldn't have even known Trivago was a German company if it wasn't for him. Uh, but it all goes back to that early youth experience and, um, helping, uh, you know, be part of that network that, uh, made of such a big impact than on my professional life. Yeah. And, uh, and so you've been in on this stint, you, you're now, you're now working for eBay, as I said, in the introduction, and you've been in Germany for, I, I'm looking at LinkedIn here, I, I think about three and a half years or something like that. Yeah, that's about right. And I wanted to ask you, so one of the, one of the fun aspects of this podcast is, you know, we get to talk to authors from all around the world. And one of the things I like to say is we get to ask them questions about things they may have experienced personally that the rest of us have only read about in the headlines. And, um, rather famously, uh, Germany has let in, you know, nearly a million refugees from Syria. And this, what, what, what one reads in the headlines is often the negative reaction that some people have had in Germany to having so many migrants in the country, it, you know, let in in a short period of time. You don't, of course, because it's not interesting to people who read headlines usually hear about the experience of, you know, all these people integrating in, you know, the vast majority living there peacefully. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your experience has been being in Germany at this time. Have have you, I mean, just to be like specific about it, like, you know, have you noticed more hate groups marching, things like that? Or, or has anything like that changed in the sort of day-to-day -day experience that you would have, you know, walking around Berlin? So that's a really great question. Um, no, I haven't experienced anything that appears to me to be uh, like hate speech or those types of rallies. It's much more common at, at rallies. Uh, Germans, especially in, in Berlin, are quite the activist folk. Uh, they, um, they do not mind one bit to take to the streets and let their opinions be known on certain issues. Um, but a lot of this has to do more with uh, kind of the gentrification of Berlin and the rapid changes of Berlin and the supporting of East Germany since uh, since reunification and uh, more economic issues, things of this nature. But I've never seen in protest anything related to um, uh, uh, so something being against people of a certain creed, national origin, uh, gender identity, sexuality, or um, political status. Uh, and, and what you really see almost pretty universally across a lot of the participants at these other um, 
events are are signs or symbols on their on their clothing uh, that are you know against fascism, against the Nazis, against uh, uh, bigotry, you know, pro acceptance of all from everywhere. You know, you you see a lot of kind of like language around that, even if that's not what is being um, demonstrated about on that particular day, because a lot of people do embody this very uh, openness of others here. Um, that, that said, uh, my, my relationship with, uh, refugees here, um, has, has been, uh, not completely limited. Uh, there, there was, and there is an organization that started in Berlin, but I actually got to know them in Dusseldorf, uh, called DevUGs and they teach, uh, refugees in Germany, web development skills. So it's like, an engineering boot camp. It's a one-year program, and it's supported by the uh, by by the government. So there's funding available for job trainings programs for for refugees, and so they they they're an officially recognized and program of the federal government here. Um, but but they work with the, that population of people who have all sorts of backgrounds. And I've met people there from. Um, uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 countries, countries where you don't think refugees particularly come from, uh, you know, South American countries but in, in places that are really peaceful, but maybe still something can happen politically. So it's not just all Syrian or Middle Eastern refugees either. Um, so there is a lot of diversity within that. So that's one thing to know that probably the headlines don't always make clear. Um, and, and a lot of their backgrounds are in very, you know, ac- you know, they're academics or they were in the middle of studies or, uh, you know, when they had to leave their home of origin, uh, they, they, they were working professionals, they were librarians, they were, you know, so many different walks of life and backgrounds. And then they come to Germany and they're trying to figure out, you know, how, how to make the best of what is truly a terrible situation. And they're away from their home and they, you know, sometimes they, they, they're, they're not speaking the language, but they're working on that. And I just see a huge amount of, of effort from those individuals to make the best of the situation they possibly can, because, you know, usually they're also, they're not here alone. Oftentimes they're here with their family. Um, and so they're also, you know, struggling to give their family the best opportunities possible. And this organization, DevUGs, does a really wonderful uh, job uh, working with them to integrate them into German society, uh, both uh, via kind of like the soft skills and lingual uh, training side, but also through the through the hard skills of uh, computer engineering. And uh, and they do a lot of job placement after that as well. And so they have a, tight, a really a really strong alumni program. And when I was at Trivago. Trivago actually had a uh, a small but unused office elsewhere in Dusseldorf, and so they actually gave that office free of charge uh, to the WGs to to use for uh, for their courses in Dusseldorf. And uh, I didn't actually know that when I f- first found out about them. I learned about them from a Facebook ad, and I just saw they were in Berlin, and I wrote them and said. I don't know if I'll ever get to meet you guys, but your mission sounds awesome. And if you ever come to Dusseldorf, please let me know. And they said, well, we have an info session in Dusseldorf next week. You should come by. And I did. And then I walked in this office I'd never been to before and saw all this Trivago stuff everywhere. And that's how I even learned we had another office. So it was just small world type of thing. But but that was another way that then I was able to engage my 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 daytime job. Uh, by being that I became then the kind of the official point of contact between Trivago and WGs and helped uh, set up 
uh, kind of like buddy shadowing programs you know, between uh, people who wanted to learn engineering and then people who were engineers. And so they have direct line of contact with each other and doing like campus tours, you know, just to kind of show like this is this is how our work is done and this is what the kind of lifestyle looks like, uh, things like this. And that, that was really, really cool. But this is one thing, this, this is, this is a population. This is a, this is a large population of need for sure here in Europe, uh, and in Germany. And, um, now that I've, uh, you know, I've only been in Berlin now for about half a year. And now that I've started to feel a little bit more settled here, um, it, it's, it's going to become, it, well, it's important for me to start finding how I can increase my community engagement in this new community and, um, uh, re-engaging with the, uh, refugee, uh, population, I, I think is, is going to be, um, a, a part of that. Um, but I still have to, to figure out where the best way is to do that. Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that really great answer. And, uh, for, uh, bringing all of our attention to this wonderful, wonderful program. It sounds like a really good, good idea. Um, link, link in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> um, uh, so the last thing I wanted to ask you about, about this uh, was, is, um, so, uh, I mentioned before we started, started taping, um, that, you know, I lived in Europe for a few years myself and as a Canadian having this accent, that means I get to experience what it's like being an American abroad too, because you know, people <laughs> often, they naturally assume you're American when they hear you. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, this is, this has come up before on this podcast, but, um, have things changed in the way people relate to you since the election? in 2016. So this, this whole topic is something I think quite a lot about. I'd like to give a shout out here to a friend of mine, a, a fellow, uh, uh, travel writer and, uh, tech professional named Joe Bauer. He writes a, uh, pod, he has a podcast and a blog called off the beaten path. And he, um, he talked about this topic once and it really, his perspective got me thinking about where I stand. And so that's why I want to credit him with, with this a little bit, because he really changed my, my perspective. Um, I used to feel very strongly that when I travel from a security perspective, I do not share in open format that I'm American because either a, you could come across somebody who has a very strong negative opinion of America and now they have their opportunity to unload on you about it. And that isn't either pleasant and depending on where you are and who you're dealing with, that could be dangerous. Um, or, uh, you find somebody who absolutely loves America and now you're in a conversation you'll never get out of, uh, even if it's a pleasant one. And, um, uh, you know, I, I've long said that there's only, there's only two types of people who think America is the greatest place on earth. And that's people who have never left and people who have never been because, you know, Look, there there is no greatest place on earth. I mean, now enter all the cliches, you know, home is where the heart is and all that stuff. You know, there there might be a place on earth that is your favorite place or it's the place that holds, you know, uh, the most dear memories or the people or, you know, whatever, um, which is the best for you. But the fact of the matter is we all have our issues and we all – every place in the world has something that makes them wonderful. Um, so So it's all a matter of perspective. But when it comes to then kind of – uh, this admission of guilt that I'm an American while travel, uh, I oftentimes really try to, to avoid this. There, there's even, there's a trope, you know, Americans will say that they're Canadian when they travel, or they even put like a Canadian, uh, flag on their backpack to, you know, be like, I'm Canadian, not American. 
And I've never, I've never done the flag thing, but I am guilty for even for claiming that as like, oh, I'm from Canada <laughs> um, or something like this because, um, uh, well, it just seems safer. Uh, so that's to your credit. So that's good. But on the other side, and this is where Joe comes in and he has a very persuasive argument, but he says, you know, um, when you come across somebody who's got an issue with the politics or foreign policy or uh, the social injustices and other things that they see in the headlines about what happens in America, then, you know, they're also not getting the full story. Uh, they're also just getting the headline and that, and that's going to be the, the thing that's most sensational and draws the most number of clicks or eyeballs or whatever. And, you know, if you think that you yourself are a half decent person and a half decent American, then by, by not disclosing that you are American, then you are passing up the opportunity to show to this person in front of you. Uh, that not all Americans are whatever they may think they are, right? And you now are uniquely given this opportunity to uh, to share and be a uh, and be an American diplomat in that moment, and and you should embrace the opportunity and not run away from it. And um, he 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 goes on and on. He he gives all sorts of just wonderful examples. So I, I can't re, you know do the instant recall in all of them. But but it really changed my perspective on this, and so now um, uh, I, I, now when I am asked this, uh, yeah, I I I don't uh, I don't hide behind the Canadian flag anymore, <laughs> um, and so uh, and, and but it does then lead to sometimes conversations around uh, you know the politics of what's happening and whatever else, and so to more directly answer then your question how things have changed, um, you know, I moved here. Uh, just three months before Donald Trump was elected president. And obviously his being president has put quite uh, the impression of America and Americans onto the world. And, um, and, and a lot of Germans do not uh, support the politics or the rhetoric uh, or the showmanship of the American president these days. And, um, and it's a little difficult because the sh now the really short way to have a conversation with people here, they also don't want to talk about American politics. And if you just basically let it be known that, you know, if you're like, like, yeah, yeah, Trump, oh, he's awful. It's terrible. Oh, America, so many terrible. Th Why do you think I'm in Germany? I wanted to escape all that. And then everybody's like, okay, good. Yeah. All right, fine. So you're okay. And we don't have to talk about this ever again. But again, this doesn't really uh, do justice to the full situation of what's going on or people's beliefs. And, uh, you know, the you know, politics in America, it's not, uh, you know, it's it's a reflection of, you know, other things that are happening. It's not the root cause of uh, of whatever you may see. And so broader conversations, you know, or trying to have broader conversations about uh, America, I think it is important. You know, one that comes up a lot here is about gun control. You know, there's so, there's so much violence in the schools and shootings in the streets and uh, all these, these um, you know, just terrible, tragic events that happen in America in a way they just don't happen in other places. And one of the reasons is because there's so many guns on the street and America doesn't want to let, let go of the guns. And, uh, you know, a lot of people from other parts of the world and Germany included have a real hard time understanding what this obsession with uh, firearms is all about. 
And um, I tend to agree. I say, well, look, I'm not really interested in guns either, even though I'm actually a really strong marksman. But I always played with played. I always uh, got to practice with my friends guns. I never felt like it was worth my own money to spend on that stuff. But uh, but I but I have shot quite a lot in my life targets. And, um, uh, you know, and and I, I can't really I can't really ex- I don't really ex- understand the rationale behind what the uh, obsession with the guns, whole gun situation is. But I do know what the history of that is. I have a lot of friends who have very large firearms collections. I, uh, I listen to them. I know what their perspectives are. I don't always agree with them, but what I think is important is that I try to understand where they're coming from and whether it's uh, they're just hobbyist shooters or they're game hunters or they really believe they have to be able to rise up and defend their freedom uh, from an oppressive uh, government, whatever the case may be. I've got friends in all of those circles and they're very uh, they're very dear people to me. And, um, on this, on this point, I might, I might not ever be able to align with them perfectly, but I, I do try to convey, you know, what I've come to know about this topic to my, uh, friends here because, um, well, it's just a different culture and way of looking at things. And, um, and this, this is, can't be conveyed in, in a headline. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Thanks again for such a great answer. It's um, you were reminding me of when you know one of the experiences of being a, a foreigner is being mistaken. Not not, not there's, it's sort of complicated, but like being mistaken for being something that you're not, and not always disabusing people of it just because you're tired or you're mad or or whatever. You know, you just reminded me of my friend who um, I went. I was telling you, I went to the trip to India with who was from there. You know, he was living in in southern Saskatchewan in the mid '90s in Canada. And people often had no idea what to make of him. And so they would project onto him whatever stereotype or prejudice that they had. So he would talk about how, you know, he was he was uh, working at a Greek restaurant and people would say, oh, look, they're hiring good Greek boys now, you know, uh, instead of the locals. And, you know, and, and I just bring up that particular example because, you know, when you say sometimes you might be you might be confused for being a Canadian and you don't always say, no, I'm American because it would just, you know, well, what now are you making an issue? It, it's, it's sort of just so complicated in the date in the sort of ordinariness of it. It's like and so I remember myself like I would I would often not disabuse people if they sort of said something in passing like like I was an American. Like, why? It's not. It's not my. I'm not. I don't want to make them think. I think there's some kind of issue here. I don't care. Uh, right. You know. And I'm not. I, I don't. I don't dislike America. But it would sound like it. I did if I corrected them in this circumstance. So you know. You often. It just get. It's so ordinary, but it's also so complicated sometimes when you're dealing with sort of someone else's gaze. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I do. I'm just. Just. Just on that. On that note. Just to. You know contribute my own personal thing to it. I remember always resenting the Canadians who wore the, the flag on the backpack. Uh, um. I did it myself uh, naively and regretted it because one of the reasons you do it is to signal that you're not American. And that's just really weak, I think. That's yeah. just really weak. Uh, yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it, you know, everyone, like I said, I did it myself when I was young. People have all kinds of reasons for doing it. But, uh, yeah, you know, uh, we're all in this together. Uh, is what I would say. Uh, yeah, it's it's true, and yeah, beautifully said. Um, uh, so moving on to your book, <laughs> it's, it's only it's only been an hour and some. So you've had this idea for this book, Exponential Happiness, for a few years now, and you've gotten around finally to writing a few chapters. And I wanted to ask you just if you could take a couple of minutes to explain the inspiration for the book and what it's about. 
Sure. Well, thankfully, I can probably give this as a short answer because the uh, the the long answer I already gave in my origin story. But when it goes back to this this moment uh, in that in that Rotary Youth Camp, when I went and expressed interest in the exchange program, and from that moment forward, my life had changed, even if I didn't recognize it at the time. Um, this moment to me was what is the is the moment that my life changed. And, uh, it took me a very long time to understand the significance of that moment and to understand why that moment and why me, uh, cause like I said, uh, I think a lot of people in that camp really could have taken my seat if they had just expressed interest themselves. And what I've, the conclusion that I've drawn is that at that time, in addition to, uh, being pretty independent from my from the way I was raised and my childhood and all this, uh, I also had a lot of people in my life, older people, wiser people, who were telling me things like "Do it while you're young," and uh, you know, you, you you know, youth is the most valuable resource you can ever have, and stuff like this. You know, just like these kind of like empowering phrases of you know, don't don't think that just because you're a teenager that you are unable to make an impact or to, to do something or to, to be somebody that you're never too young to get started. And, and all that was kind of just embedded uh, underneath somewhere. And, and I think what that really did was it gave me a sense of permission, uh, that, that when this opportunity arose, I, I was allowed to express my interest that, it could have just as easily been that after expressing my interest, my parents said, uh, uh-uh, uh, no way. We're not letting you go. You're too young, you know, whatever could have been right. You know, I, I bet there's a bunch of other examples of stuff where maybe I tried something that didn't work out, but this was the one that did. And it, and it matters uh, quite a lot. And, and I think that what made me different in some degree was that I had the encouragement of those older, wiser people in my life, giving me that empowering advice uh, that that made me feel like I had the permission to go, and um, and so what I really wanted to write the book about was the impact that uh, that starting particularly at a young age, the the positive impact that that can really have on your life because uh, just just in the same way, so exponential happiness is a is a nod of the hat to, or tip of the hat to. Uh, uh, to the compounding interest and investment. So if you know about the miracle of compounding interest, uh, this is, uh, as you invest over time, interest, uh, become invests upon itself over and over and over again. And that, uh, the best way to make compounding interest pay off for you in the end is by starting early by giving it more years to compound over. And so the same, in the same way that, that by starting to invest financially early, will pay out higher dividends later in life. Uh, I believe that getting a start in understanding what your life goals are, what it is that you want to do with your life, and putting together a, a sensible plan that helps you start to achieve those goals, uh, if you can do that at an early age, then that really has the opportunity to give you, to pay out dividends on exponentially, exponential growth on happiness over life. Because, um, you know, don't be confused. 
there will be uh, 90 degree turns in, in, in the road and there will be uh, fails and there will be all sorts of mistakes made. But, but that's all learning opportunity and that's all just life happening. But if you can get some of that stuff out of the way early on and you can get those experiences you know, over in your 20s instead of in your 30s, there's just a huge advantage to that, I believe. And so uh, now that I'm a little bit older and um, maybe I'm a little bit wiser, uh, I hope I'm wiser than my 17-year-old self at least, um, you know, I just felt that this was my opportunity to try to share uh, my perspective on 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 all of that, as well as share some of the lessons that I've learned through my travels, um, you know, being in so many different corners of the world and, you know, living with families and getting to know people and at the local level and all these different cultures. You know, I've been exposed to a lot of different ways of thinking and life and, you know, philosophies around the world. And so, you know, I've, con- you know, I've had a couple of years to contemplate that now. And, uh, and I, and, and I'm, and I'm still on my adventure for sure. And I hope I always will be, I hope I never get off the adventure, but, but, uh, but I felt like I was at a point now where I've, I've, I, I've, I've kind of put some of these philosophies and experiences and the reflection in, into terms that I think can be shared and, and, and hopefully will make an impact in, in the lives of those who read it. It's interesting you bring up, uh, you know, some of the advice you heard when you were young was, you know, do it young. But you also mentioned in the book that, you know, not all the not all the advice, the life advice you get is going to be good. Uh, and so you <laughs> in particular, you single out the sentiment, you know, I had to suffer when I was your age. So you do, too. It, it's character. It, oh, it, I hate this and, so and, much. Yeah, you, you, say, you say I adamantly disagree with this statement. And so I could tell I could tell like you meant it. So, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Well, I just I just believe that, you know, that the suffering of the previous generation does not need to be repeated by by this one. Right. This is this is what we call progress. If 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 in our lives we can solve problems so that our children and the generation that comes after us can not worry about the same problems, but instead focus on other problems to solve because there will be other problems to solve. So, you know, the idea that problems need to be repeated for character building, you know, you know, walking uphill both ways through a blizzard to get to school, that type of thing. Uh, you know, I just, um, I, I, I just believe that, uh, just because it used to be a certain way or that our parents or that we, uh, had to suffer through a certain way of life. Um, this, this shouldn't, just this shouldn't apply to the future generation, right? Like we've, we've solved a lot of, of problems. And if we want to really advance, advance, uh, the human race forward, um, we should try to minimize the number of pains, uh, that the next generation have to suffer, which we already did. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. Thanks. That's, that's very well said. It's, um, it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it, you know, I think one of the, um, there are very few things that are sort of recurring in every generation in human society, but one of them is the view that the kids these days are weaker than than we were. Oh yeah, um, and that that that's it's actually that aspect of of that um, sentiment that that really gets me angry. It's like just reflect on this for a moment, please. You're being you're being stupid. Like <laughs> you know, uh, uh, to have some self respect, and you know, and, and anyway, I, anyway, yeah, I, I very much agree with you about about, about that. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't mean we have to understand everything 
that the the younger generation does right um you know just you know there, there's there's always you know there's a great trope around music you know it's like oh when i was your age we had real music and yeah uh you know and that i think you know every generation has this and it, it just goes to show and there's nothing wrong with it but it just goes to show that you know when when you know musical taste changes between generations or technology changes um or expressionism changes or whatever uh you know these are all to me these are all signals of that progress and you know for for the you know those of us who are uh in the in the slightly older category now because you know we're not 12 13 14 15 16 and we're seeing how kids are engaging with technology or their uh the music they're listening to or the youtube channels they're watching or whatever the case may be and we look at that stuff and we just can't get on board with it at all well that as hard as it is to to imagine it's probably actually somehow a sign of progress um and it it doesn't require our approval to be honest yeah it's uh no no it's 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 interesting too you're reminding me of a a friend of mine had this kind of like hard-ass sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek joke about how you know when you see when you when you get older and you see kids complaining about something that would have been a wild luxury when you were young about and sure. complain about it not being good enough. What you're actually seeing is someone with higher standards than you had, right? Uh, you know, and, and actually what you're seeing is someone who's fighting over stuff that you, you didn't fight over, um, That's right. you know, and so representing that it's just sort of like to sort of take that and twist it into an, and repre- misrepresent it as an expression of weakness. It's like, nah, <laughs> this is quite, quite something else that you're witnessing someone do when they like, for example, point out an injustice, that you would have just accepted as a trivial everyday matter, you know, like right. they're not being weak by doing that. You know, you might want to reflect on who was being weak. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, uh, anyway, uh, where we're reaching feature length here, which I always enjoy it when that happens in an interview, but it doesn't mean we should probably move on. So, um, so you've, you've decided to self publish your book and I was wondering, at least in this iteration of it. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you chose lean pub as the platform for writing and publishing the book? Well, um, so actually I, I had decided to, yes, I decided to, to self-publish. Um, and that's kind of a whole other story, but, uh, I was talking with some colleagues of mine and I had mentioned that I was writing a book and I mentioned this to somebody, uh, who's on my current team right now working at eBay. Um, he's, he's brilliant. He's one of, he's, he's one of the uh, engineers I rely on most heavily day over day. And I happened to mention to him I was working on this book, and he said, "Oh, I've written a book," and I I was so surprised. <laughs> and uh, he'd actually written four books, and he had published them on LeanPub. And so um, he he showed me this, and this was even this was a, a month ago, I guess. So I'm still quite new to LeanPub, but he uh, he gave me his testimonial uh, on on his experience publishing his four books on LeanPub, and he showed me his author dashboard in the back end and how it all worked. And he talked about, um, you know, how you can uh, do version control with Git. And uh, I was already writing everything in Google Docs, but you also, there's, I have this integration with Google Docs and, um, and there's just so many great options there. And I just looked at it and I said, this is, you know, this is everything I was looking for and more because I don't even know what I was looking for. But as I discovered LeanPub, I said, this has got to be the, the answer. And I, I really liked the the background and uh, that it was it was very my my initial impression of LeanPub 
was that uh, it was a um, kind of a tech author's paradise, right? So um, if I got your history correct, a lot of the um, the early uh, authors, uh, it was kind of a solution for writing technical manuals and having uh, being able to have uh, technical um, uh, the you know, proper uh, code and everything else uh, in published form, and uh, and just just the philosophy that. You know, you're very open. You, you offer this platform, but then you know, but it's but it is the author's book, and the author is free to take uh, the results and do what they want with it. Or, you know, it, it doesn't feel like you're going into a place where you're, you know, it, it, it's like to going into a really advanced open source environment, right? And taking something that is near and dear to yourself, but being able to take it into a place where it's also going to be welcomed and where you're going to have the resources necessary to do something that, quite honestly, uh, is uh, I think pretty um, daunting. Right. I mean, it's it's hard enough to write a book. Uh, and this is my first book. So uh, I'm, I'm learning a lot of things as I as I go. And one of the things that uh, most uh, concerned me was once I get the text on the page, what am I supposed to do with it? And uh, so when he showed me LeanPub, uh, it was such a, a burden, a, a weight taken off my shoulders uh, as I, uh, you know, explored LeanPub on my own. And I said, oh, yeah, they've really thought of everything here. They have the MailChimp integration. You have the marketing landing pages. You have uh, the Google Analytics. You got, you know, integration to, uh, you know, Git and Google and Markua is there. And like, it's so, so many great resources um, for authors to really be able to do uh, what it, whatever it is that they want to get done, uh, they can do there. And, uh, I just hadn't seen that type of flexibility or that type of kind of open box, uh, environment anywhere else. And to me, um, uh, without even knowing precisely what it is I was looking for when I was shown LeanPub, uh, it was just apparent to me that this, this was, uh, the resource, uh, to, to use. Oh, thanks for that. Thanks for that explanation. It's it's interesting. You say um you're you're relatively new to LeanPub, but you've already managed to do to do something new new to LeanPub, uh, which is um as I was researching for this interview, I signed up uh, at at JudsonLMoore dot com slash book. You can give your email address and your first name, and then you can download the three chapters. I always like to see we always like to see how how self published authors are sort of managing this process. And you, uh, if someone sort of signs up to download the first three chapters. You have them in PDF, EPUB, and Mobi format, but you've also done something that I don't think any LeanPub author has done before, which is view the Google Doc. Uh, and so you've actually set up, I don't know if it's, I, I imagine it's probably not the same as the manuscript for your book, but, but you've set up a Google Doc that people can comment on and, and, you know, and, and made this public and just a part of, a part of the process of, of getting onboarded. Uh, yeah, I don't think anyone has done that. Writing in Google Docs mode is actually our newest writing mode, uh, so we're st we'll still we're still learning about it ourselves and how authors are choosing to use it. And that's a really interesting use. So one of the reasons we leave this section of the interview for the last part of, of the interview <laughs> is so that you know, the people who stick around are people at this point are people who are interested in learning like you know techniques and tips and strategies for self publishing. And so is that is are are you going to um, expand? Are, are, do you have any intention of letting people comment on the book manuscript itself, like when it's as as it progresses, or will it remain on the sample that you're encouraging people to do this? Yeah, so that's a great question. To which um, I, I've gotten a lot of really good feedback that way. Actually, my pref my preference, if everybody would read the the sample. Um, however, I wanted them to, I would say everybody use Google docs so that you can comment and give me feedback. And, um, 
I, I would be happy to really open the entire book up and have people come in as we go. Uh, and I guess the reason that I've thought not to do that is because um, I, I just am not sure that that I, I think that's asking a lot. Uh, you know, it's already a lot to say, hey, would you, you know, it, on one side, it's a carrot and stick, right? It's, it's, hey, the carrot is you get to read the first three chapters. And then it's like, hey, by the way, can you give, us some, give me some feedback? Yes, I'm asking you to work. <laughs> and, and it's one thing to maybe ask people to work and give some feedback on a sample. It's another thing on an entire book. Like at that point, I feel like maybe I need to engage the services of a professional editor or somebody who's done this before. Uh, but that's not because I'm opposed to opening up the book for comment. Actually, I would love to do that. I'm just not... I just don't know if I have the confidence that I'd be able to get people to stick around and contribute, but maybe I should try and find out. Well, one thing, one thing I would say is our, our experience has been um, that people love giving feedback and they love helping and they don't, they don't feel like it's work. And one of the reasons this has worked so well with us is that like, if there's a typo and someone like literally people like, they're like, Hey, there's a typo on page nine. Here's here. Here's what it is. The thing about, the way LeanPub works is that an author can take that feedback and just like make the change and click publish to publish a new version in like a minute. Right. And right. so when, when a reader sees a change that they suggested, like a correction that they've made actually updated in the book itself, that for, for, for many readers, that's a magical experience. You know? oh, and, okay. and, and in particular, like, as you pointed out, most LeanPub books, you know, historically have been technical books. That's partly because it was, invented uh, partly because of you know the experience that the co-founders had or that the founders had of you know publishing a technical book and then having it be obsolete you know the next day and so you know actually realizing that oh the traditional book publishing process actually isn't necessarily right particularly for you know uh, technical books because it takes so long and then when you couple that to the idea that, hey, maybe like you should, particularly with technical subjects, if someone really needs to learn it, they don't care. They don't, they don't, they would like the book to be 100% finished. But if there's only three chapters, the three chapters is three chapters better than, than none on this oh, yeah. technology. But, but I, I was thinking about it that, so for books like that, like for example, if you've got a code samples, so computer code samples, and someone tries running it and there's a mistake, then it won't run. Then they, they kind of need to tell you Hey, you know, your book is broken and, 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 and then, you know, that it's sort of like, they're like, like I, and I'm not sure I'm right that this is the problem, but you know, blah, blah, blah. So, so getting people, it, it actually, it's more than just their desire to help. Like they, they need it to work. Um, right. But I was thinking when I was reading your book and I was like, huh, you know, I wonder how, you know, when it comes to typos and stuff like that, sure. But your book is so personal and it's so much about people's lives that if you opened it up to comment, you might end up in this you know, kind of, I don't know, whirlpool of getting sucked into other people's like life stories because they'll, they'll want, they'll, they'll hear yours and they'll want to share their own. And then you could end up with this Google doc that, that takes on a life of its own. And I'm like, I'm not saying that's necessarily bad, but like, you know, I just, I honestly don't know. Well, I'll tell you. So the, the, the initial writing of the book, start to finish, I'm going to talk about, you know, I've got, I've got the whole structure and outline of everything I want to cover. And as I provide examples, uh, they will be, or the intent is that they will be examples from my own life because I don't have to fact check those, you know, I I can just write it down and it's finished. But, uh, what I'd really like to do is, uh, when I get done, I want to go back to the beginning and figure out where can I replace the example from my own life with a story or an example from someone else. Oh. And, and actually, uh, cause, 
because of course, of course, I want to share my story and it is very personal and I, I don't want to remove that element from there. But I also don't want it to be only about me, or at least I don't. In, uh, the intent is that it doesn't have to be only about me. Uh, in fact, I make this point very strongly in the book where, you know, I, I'm not trying to convince anybody to do the things I did or to go travel the world or to be an exchange student or to join the Peace Corps. Uh, I, I've got. Uh, you know, the, the book does not serve any of those interests at all. It is about everyone uh, should be able to take some universal tools and perspectives and re- reflect on their own lives about what they're interested in accomplishing with their lives, whatever that may be, and setting forth uh, some goals and a plan for how to start achieving those goals. Um, and so and so it, it is important to me that at some point I'm able to go back and interject some stories from other walks of life and from other things that have been accomplished. I think that'll make this, the, the book more, more interesting. Um, I mean, I, I think I do have a pretty interesting story, uh, I hope, <laughs> but, but, um, but it's a little bit too monolithic, uh, even for my own taste, if the only thing I'm talking about is me, me, me the whole time. So, so by, by only telling my story in this first version, uh, that kind of helps me just get uh, progress done, you know, so I can just get finished. Um, cause of course published is better than, uh, not, uh, is better than perfect. Um, but, uh, but in the end, I really do want to, uh, have some people reach out to me and, uh, by subscribing, uh, or by down, you know, signing up to download the book on my website. I also trigger a couple of emails, uh, as I'm writing, uh, I'm also asking people like, Hey, I'm writing chapter five. It's about decision-making and not, you know, does anybody have an interesting story to share about a time you had to make a decision in your life and how that worked out, you know, and I'm hoping they'll be able to collect some stories like this and, um, and maybe even some of those stories turned into interviews, uh, that I can use from, uh, a new podcast down the road, you know? So, um, yeah, so I think you're absolutely correct that, uh, it could turn into a, a big wormhole of, uh, everybody, uh, kind of telling all, all sorts of wide variety of stories. But, um, I, I don't, I don't perceive that as, as a bad thing at all. I think that just, um, sets the stage for writing book number, two, four, 20, 40, 50, you know? So, yeah, well, it'll be, it'll be really exciting to see uh, what happens uh, and best of luck with the project. Um, the, the, Thank last, you. the last question I always like to ask people on this podcast is um, if there was one thing we could build for you or one thing we could fix for you that you found is broken, can you think of anything you would ask us to do? Sure. So, um, well, I will say, so, um, you know, now that, now that you've done a good job of calling me out on, uh, using your service and then using my own website to kind of like, uh, route people through the marketing and stuff. Um, you know, I actually, uh, uh, I, I did, like I said, I only joined up about a month ago and, uh, and then the last two weeks I've been traveling. So I was really on a tight deadline to try to just get something uh, produced before I started traveling because I had had a, this initial marketing release uh, was pretty soon after uh, I had learned about lean pub. And so I'd spent some, some hours, uh, trying to figure out, you know, the Google integration and should I use Git? And I said, okay, no, it's too complicated. I'm already in Google. And actually I already had all the chapters sorted out by individual chapters the way that uh, it needs to be done um, to, to publish on, on LeanPub. So all that like worked out really well, but I, I did find sometimes uh, in Google Docs when I'd hit the, the publisher preview that it, I couldn't really tell if the, the results were, were going through. And there were a couple of times when 
titles were not being uh, properly displayed as titles. Uh, and, and I couldn't figure out if I was doing something wrong uh, or if there was a bug in this system. Um, but so, so, you know, so everything was arranged, right. But, you know, and I, and I, I marched forward and I tried to get the, you know, the, the landing page set up and the MailChimp integration through LeanPub all done. And actually, from what I could tell, most everything seemed to work, but I think I was just, I was just so new to, to this tool and it, it's, it was both, it was sophisticated, but easy. Uh, but, but as I was just up against this deadline, I said, uh, I don't think I I need a little bit more experience here to feel the confidence that, uh, as I go off traveling and don't have access to my computer for two weeks, that the system just is going. Uh, and so, and so I, that's why I did the the landing page on, on my own, on my own blog, um, um, and, and through MailChimp, my own MailChimp uh, set up. Um, but, but I, you know, but none of that was particularly because I was unsatisfied or couldn't figure anything out, but as much as I was just so, so kind of like new to using lean pub, but there was, there was, there did seem to be an issue where the, uh, the titles of chapters were not being di- displayed properly as titles within the, the lean pub version, uh, when I was using Google docs. Um, yeah. Okay. Thanks very much for that feedback. I mean, for for us, the more detailed, the better, and that's that's really great. Um, you know, it, it is our newest writing mode, and there are still some things that are happening. I mean, we have noticed sometimes that people do have issues with titles, and we're not exactly sure yet precisely what's going on there. But like, if you start with the default documents that we give you when you create a book in Google Docs, and you just kind of like replace the title with your own, if you know what I mean, you know, then it then yeah. it works. And it's when, it's when people start, because Google Docs has all these wonderful features that we don't, we don't support them all. Uh, sure. So people naturally play around and they're creative. I mean, they're authors, right? Uh, right. And, and so it's sometimes when people are trying to do things that we don't support, but it's, it's hard for us to be like, like what we show you in our example documents is exactly what we support. And it's, it's enough to write most books, uh, but people can't often, you know, do go, do go do other things. You know, uh, having a, a, a folder on Google drive that has 10 chapters and everything else like lined out already with some Lorium Ipsum or something with the proper formatting as something that you can link to. And then authors who want to use Google drive can just make a copy of that folder and already be like ready to go. That, that could be a benefit. That could be helpful. Well, when you, uh, it's interesting because when we, when you create a new book in LeanPub and you choose the Google Docs mode in Google Drive, we actually give you three documents. Ah, you didn't know. But, but if you switch from another mode, you don't get that. And actually, oh, that's why. And that, I bet you that's what happened. And so what we should, we actually probably should have just a public document where it's like, for people who are thinking, do I want to write in this mode? Just have something public. That you, so you don't have to actually create a book to actually see what those default documents are. So thanks, thanks for that. And the other thing you mentioned is that I think it's that when you, so the way it works with when you're writing in Google Drive, it, using Google Docs to write a LeanPub book is you add, you know, there's this add-on called the LeanPub add-on that you add in, in Google. And, um, and then you've got a little panel on the right-hand side of your document mm. and you can click this yeah. button to preview. And then we show, you know, the working kind of a message that says working dot, dot, dot. And if, if you've done something in your document that breaks our book generators, it, you'll just, you won't see, it'll just get hang. It'll just hang on that. And that's yeah. something that we definitely need to improve. We need, cause if you do it in sort of a normal lean pub mode, then we do show you, Hey, you know, it broke, you know, we're, we'll look into it if you ask us to, but you, you know, you've probably done something that breaks your book generators and, and showing that message 
that, hey, it broke. Maybe the problem is this. Maybe the problem is that is is like 100% something that we know that we need to okay. that we need to do because it it's very confusing to people to just like see it hang. And and, yeah, you, yeah. and and they don't say because you don't yeah you don't know how long it's supposed to take exactly so. and, and, also, <laughs> and also what you can do in the add-on is you can just go back and then you can actually start a new preview but you don't even know that you can do that so yeah so well thank you very much Judson oh do you have anything else to well I was just going to say there's one more thing that I'm trying to figure out now and I'd just be so happy if you told me I can already do it with Lean Pub but I hadn't I hadn't noticed it and that's that of course I'm very happy to be able to get the published uh, documents ready for all the digital distribution as well as to get the, um, uh, the, the file that's like print ready file uh, and all that. But at some point I, and I imagine a lot of people would like to actually get a physical copy of the book printed. And, um, and I hadn't noticed that you offer any type of uh, connection to a print house, but, um, but that, that's kind of for me, the, the last step in all of this is, is where, where am I going to go to actually get a thousand copies of the book, uh, in my hand or in my garage? <laughs> yeah. And so actually, I'll, I'll link to it. We've, we've had a couple of authors. We, we get this, we've had this question before as you, as you intuited correctly. Um, and, uh, so we have a print ready PDF output option, as you, as you mentioned, so you can, you can just click a button to create a downloadable file that you can then use to upload to services that make print on demand books like, like Lulu or uh, KDP um, and others with respect. I mean, of course, like, you know, in there, there is this version of an ideal world where you click a button and LeanPub just sends you a printed copy to test and it's magic. The, the reason we haven't done that is because that is a very different business uh, when you're, mm. as you know, when you're dealing in everything, when everything you're dealing with, I mean, you, well, I think as a part of your job, you deal with like the sale of uh, advertisement and sale of cars. Um, right. And once you move into the material space, uh, you're dealing with a totally different business than one that's, you know, entirely digital. And that's, sure. the, that's the main reason. So what we do is we give every, we give, we try to give people exactly what you need to go to other services that do physical stuff. But but we don't we we're not we're just not in that business and I suspect probably never will be because it's just it's just totally different. There are people out there who've kind of like Amazon and 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 others who've actually kind of solved solved the problem. And so mm -hmm. what we what we do focus on is giving like really listening because like you know the 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 requirements that these companies have can change over time and stuff like that. So we're all like if you if you if you've got a print on demand service that's asking you for something that LeanPub doesn't give you. Because you you know you they're the physical books are all based on digital files, so we can give you those digital files. And if you come across a requirement that we don't satisfy, then please please let us know to anyone who's listening and to you to you personally, of course. Um, so uh, okay. thank you very much, Judson, for taking the time out of an evening you could have spent doing something probably more interesting in Berlin doing. Uh, oh uh, no, Lynn, this has been a, such a pleasure. <laughs> well, thanks thanks very much, and thank you for uh, being a guest on the podcast and for being an author, a lean pop author. Thank you so very much. I look forward uh, to the being on this journey with you for years to come. This is only the beginning. Thanks. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please go to our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.